If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Galatians chapter 5. We'll be studying and thinking through this morning, verses 2 through 6. So far, throughout the book of Galatians, we've been talking, and we highlighted this last week, about two basic ways that Paul has been laying out that people approach God, especially here in Galatia. One of those ways is through the law, and it is through works that they will do. They will make themselves appealing to God. They will make themselves sons of God through their doing what the law requires of them. The other is going to be based on faith, that they will trust in Christ. They will trust in what he has done. They will believe in him fully. And we talked about these two spheres, the one of works through the law and the other through faith. And, and we talked about their characteristics, that the law and those who, who pursue a relationship with God who pursue being approved by God through the law and works of the law. They are characterized by the flesh, that they work with their flesh. They are characterized by sin uh, because your flesh cannot help but sin. They're characterized by the old age, not the new age. They are characterized by being cursed from God. They are characterized by slavery and certainly they are not going to be inheritors of the promise. But those who came in through, through faith were all of the opposites. They were not characterized by the flesh, but characterized by the spirit. They were not characterized by sin, but by righteousness. They were not characterized by the old age, but the new. Not by cursing, but blessing. Not by slavery, but freedom. And they were certainly sons and heirs. This is the setup of the book of Galatians from the very first verse until now, especially from the last part of chapter 2 through all of chapter 4. Paul's been pushing these two sort of characterizations of the way we pursue God. But it would behoove us, it would do us well to stop for a minute and think through what we actually mean when we say that faith versus the law is what we're talking about. What kind of faith are we talking about? What are the characteristics or what is the nature of this faith? Today we're going to look at four different parts of faith as Paul lays it out, I think, here in verses 2 through 6. We will look at the focus of our faith. We'll ask why we should believe in the purpose of our faith. We'll talk about the goal of our faith and what actually fuels our faith, what makes our faith work. And so if you would read with me, beginning in verse 2 of the fifth chapter of Galatians. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of our God. First thing we want to talk about this morning is the focus of our faith. And the focus of our faith is Christ. The focus of our faith is Christ. Christ. In America, man, we talk about faith all the time. It is not controversial to talk about faith or to even prop up faith as a virtue. Nearly every Disney movie does this. Faith is a virtue. You have to believe in something. There's this magical little star that goes over the castle. You're to believe in magic, right? But we believe in a number of different things in America. We believe in ourselves. Self-confidence is one of the number one things that we try to instill in our kids or that we're told we should instill in our kids is, is self-confidence. Self-confidence is a noted American trait. Many people around the world note that how confident Americans are. Even when we have absolutely no reason to be confident, we are immensely confident. We think that it leads to achievement. If one believes that they can do it, then they will do it. 
we believe in America. We believe that if America is wrong, that the process and the, the makeup and the nature of America will right it. We think that America will always come to the right conclusions or is already even so the best place on earth. And many believe that if God is going to establish a kingdom on earth, my goodness, it will look a lot like America. We believe in America. We believe in God. Big G or little G, it doesn't really matter. We believe in something. We believe in a higher power that is beneficent, that looks down upon us and, and pours blessings out that paves the path before us. He, he makes those hills and difficult parts smooth for us to, to walk along. So no matter the toil, no matter the difficulties, we believe that everything will work out for people because some sort of deity wants it to work out for you. He is looking out for your best. Frankly, that means that we believe in the good. We think that people are good. We believe that deep down inside, even with the crustiness that they might have on the outside, deep down inside there is goodness in them. We likewise think that good, for whatever reason, will always win. We think that good will just always sort of triumph over bad. What it really comes down to in, in our culture, in our nation, is simply raw optimism. We simply think that things are going to work out, that things are good, that things will happen for the best for us simply because they have in the past or because they will in the future. It's, it's really unclear to me why we believe in these things. I, I don't understand what the optimism is for people in America when it comes to faith. They don't even really know what they're supposed to believe in. They, they don't have really an object. They just believe in believing. Believing itself is good. It's very confusing whether you believe in yourself or whether you believe in your nature or you believe in God's relationship with you, that he only intends good for you, the question that always comes to my mind is, why do you think, why do you who are here this morning, why do you think that God only intends good for you? Why do you think the people out there do? What is it about the nature of the world that leads you to believe in that? My family and I just this week went down to a funeral for a four-year-old boy in Louisville. That little boy knew nothing but pain and trouble his whole life. Even after being adopted, in his short life, he knew more of needles and scalpels and tubes and pain than I hope anyone will ever have to know. And the end of all that was death for him. Where is the optimism? Why should we believe with all the turmoil and craziness that goes on around us, that there is some sort of beneficent God who sits in heaven working everything out for us. I might never ever say this again, but I kind of hold with the atheists here. There's a lot of evidence that he's not up there doing that. For people who just want to believe in faith, who people who just want to believe in, in the generalities of the world and God being kind to the world for no good reason at all, just because he's kind, the question is, what do you do with the futility of the world? What do you do with the rancidness of the world? What do you do with infant deaths? And what do you do with gun violence? And what do you do with all of the horrible atrocities that not only happen around the world, but even in nature? The one thing that God should control, even if he's given people free will, he should be in control of nature, and yet nature rebels against us. Where does that optimism come from? It certainly does not come from Scripture. I was reminded in Sunday school this morning in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10, 
It has a great scripture for God's wrath and judgment to be shown on people. But Jude 3 was the one that I had in mind when I, I went through the sermon. I love the book of Jude. And Jude says, at first, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but something has come up and I need to not write to you about our salvation, but instead I need to write to you about this issue. And he says in Jude 3, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who were long ago designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. Long ago, they were designated for this condemnation. Long ago, God had them set aside that he might condemn them, that he might destroy them. We don't believe simply in belief But our belief has to have an object. There has to be something there that grounds our trust and faith in God, and that is nothing less than Jesus Christ. That is what we believe in. We don't just believe in some sort of nebulous, ill-defined God who is actually more like us than we are like him. We believe that he is a God who is kind because we want him to be a God who is kind. We believe that he is a God who forgives because we want him to be a God who forgives. We believe that he is a God who judges because we want him to judge other people. We believe in these things not because it's how God has revealed himself, but because of what we want him to be. But Christians, Christians cannot ever do that. We are Christians because the object of our faith, the focus of our faith is always on Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the image of God. He is the demonstration of who God is. You want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. You want to know what he is like, you look at Jesus. Philip found this out the hard way in John 14 when he says, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. It seems like a small request. Just show us the Father Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Listen, God is indeed merciful and he is kind and he is forgiving and he indeed wants what is best for us insofar. And this is important, insofar. The focus of our faith is not on these general qualities of God, but insofar as the focus of our faith is on Christ, is on his death and resurrection. Paul talks very, very similarly here in in 2, verses 2 through 3, where he says the focus has got to be on Christ. Christ is of no advantage to you. You are severed from Christ. Christ is the focus and the goal of our faith. He talks much the same way back in Galatians 2, verse 21. I will not and I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no reason. It is the death of Christ that we focus on. It is his whole life, but the death and the resurrection, which we will celebrate this Friday and the coming Sunday, it is his death and resurrection that are the central parts of our faith. We know that God is kind. We know that he is merciful. We know that he will be good to us because even while we were sinners, he gave his son for us. So our focus is always on what Christ has done for us. Secondly, The purpose of our faith is gain. The purpose of our faith is gain. Now, I am not known as the world's greatest chef, although I am fairly certain that Gordon Ramsay could not, in his life, put together a better bowl of cereal than I can. I also make a mean oatmeal, so I got those two things going for me. But beyond that, I normally seed this to people who are better at it than I. However... 
All of us who have made anything realize that heat is our friend and our enemy. Not so much when it comes to cereal, but with other things, heat is our friend and our enemy. You need heat to cook. But if you lose focus for a moment, if you take your eyes off of it, that heating will very quickly turn to burning, okay? And we can easily take something that's got water in it and boil it down into something that is so disgusting that not even the dog will eat it, okay? It's very easy to do this, and I'm not just speaking from experience, although I might be speaking from some. Uh, But we can do this. We do this all the time. It's helpful to boil things down. It's helpful and good to do that, but sometimes when we do it too much, it ruins what we're doing, and that actually becomes the case with a good deal of Christian theology. We, we want to systematize things. We want to make it easier and more chewable. We want to be able to put it in a way that people can understand it. But sometimes when we do it, we take out a lot of the nuance and a lot of the flexibility that the Word of God has sort of put in to what we believe. One of these cases, I think, and you'll have to hang with me for a minute. Trust me, we'll get back around to this, is the fact that our faith is sort of geared for us to be more selfless that you're supposed to somehow always be looking outside of yourself. You're supposed to act toward the best for others. And the goal of the Christian life is almost like an emptying of yourself. Okay? I think that that's good and wholesome given the nature of our culture that is so focused on ourselves that we need to be reminded that we cannot fall into that trap. We are so focused on our own greed that we are willing to oppress other people, that we are willing to sue other people at the drop of a hat, that we are willing to to lie and cheat and steal to get ahead and think that these things are okay because this is the way the world works. We are a greedy and self-centered people, and so as far as it goes, I think that that's fine. But we also need to be reminded that the scriptures uphold at every single turn every single one, the reason why you are to act, the reason why you are to believe, and the reason why you are to do anything is because it's good for you. At the heart of Christian revelation is that you are to do things because it is the best thing for you to do for you. This is why we are given things like warnings. God warns his people that I will bring destruction on you if you don't stop. He doesn't say that so that they will say, okay, well, thanks for the warning. Right? He does that so that they will stop doing what they're doing so that they won't enter into judgment. The narratives of Scripture oftentimes lead like this. It shows us the ill results of bad living. If you live a certain way, if you don't trust God, you don't listen to God, this is what befalls you. If you listen to him, this is what befalls you. The, the emphasis in those things is so that you will choose what is good and right for you. Listen, if you go back, read the entire Sermon on the Mount. The entire Sermon on the Mount is pointed for you to act in your best interest. At every single stop and at every single point, you are to act in your own best interest. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth but in heaven. Why? Because if you lay lay them up for yourself here, they're going to be destroyed. As in you do a good thing, don't go around trumpeting it in front of people. Why? Because you'll get your reward. People will (laughs) clap at you. And then you're done. He says, but God knows these things. And if you do it and you keep it to yourself, God will reward you in heaven. It's better for you. Do you want clap from men or do you want the praise and the glories of God? Don't be anxious. Worry does nothing for you, Jesus tells us. But God will give you what you need. As a matter of fact, he says, if you focus on the kingdom of God as you should, then all these things will be added unto you. God will give them all to you. It's better for you to do this. Don't take the wide road that leads to destruction, but the narrow road, right? Don't build your house on the rock, or excuse me, build your house on the rock. Don't build it on the sand, right? He says these things because it's better for you. 
Every single turn, every single moment of biblical witness, you are to act because it's good for you. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why we are to be unselfish. You are to be unselfish because, ironically, it's better for you to be unselfish than it is to be selfish. People who are selfish stupidly are selfish people who hoard for themselves. They don't even know how to be selfish. The scripture is teaching you how to be selfish the right way. And that is to walk wisely in the Lord, to work and to act and to live and to believe in things that are the best for you. This is basically, I just summed up for you, the entire book of Proverbs. You're welcome. So Paul pleads with you, I would plead with you, that you are to believe because it is good for you. It is for your gain. Listen to what he says here. He says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He won't be of gain to you. If you decide that you are going to make your mark on works and you are going to do what the law says, he says, Christ is of no advantage to you. But on the flip side, what happens when you go to the law? He says, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the law. Now, the ESV doesn't help us with a, a really good parallel here. And actually, I'm, I always joke about the KJV, but the KJV does a really good job here. So we're going to go back to the 1600s for just a second. And we're going to have the KJV. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, I feel like a pirate when I say that. If ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Notice the profit term there. He will profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. There's profit in Christ and there is debt in the law. You can either gain from the work of Christ. You can gain and profit much from him. All of the blessings of heaven are open to you. The eternally and joyful, happy, blessed, triune God opens himself up to you through Christ to all of the heavenly blessings. Everything you could ever want or hope or imagine can be given to you through that. He will give you forgiveness. He will give you joy. He will give you peace. He will give you comfort. Everything that you need, God will give you in spades. If you then turn away from that advantage, You no longer have incoming, all of this goodness. You no longer have profit coming to you, but instead you are nothing more than one who has to give out. You work, you work, you work. You need to produce for the law. You need to do what it requires of you. You need to do what it says. You are a slave to it. Paul says, which one of these sounds better to you? To gain all of the advantages of Christ or to be a debtor to the law, to profit from one or to be a prophet for the law and another. It is obvious from what Paul is saying here is that you've got to put away that I, any idea that you might work for it, believe in Christ for no other reason than it is good for you. It is good for you. It is good for you to believe and to trust in him. And the, one of the reasons why it's good for you to trust in him is because it's true. It's not as though we don't believe in things because they're true. But, There's a lot of things that are true that we don't trust in the same way that we need to trust in this. We trust the sky is blue. We trust that water is blue. We trust that in San Antonio, next week, there will be calls of go blue. We know that this is true, but it doesn't profit us anything. It doesn't mean anything. We believe in Scripture, and we believe specifically in the work that Christ has done because it profits us much. It is for your good. Believe in Christ. Number three, the goal of our faith is righteousness. 
The goal of our faith is righteousness. The central image throughout Galatians is this sort of final courtroom scene. God is calling all of mankind, men and women, before him, and he will judge them based on the works that they have done. Now, part of our misconception as to why we can't mix works in Christ is because we base it on sort of a merit system, right? We, we think that what we're really trying to do is, is God will put in the scales as though justice is weighed this way, our good things and our bad things. And, and as long as our good things kind of outweigh our bad things, then we're in the clear. And even the way that Christians or Protestants who talk about this rightly will, will say things like, well, your bad stuff so outweighs your good stuff that there's no way you can get it down. But that's a really bad way to talk about these things. Because that makes Paul's central contention here very, very unclear. Why is it that we can't think of our salvation like a big bucket of water? And where even if Christ fills it 99% of the way tall, why does my 1% nullify the rest of it? Why, if Christ is willing to, to give me merit, can I not earn more merit on top of that? This is the way Catholics talk about it from Anselm not really Anselm, but from Aquinas forward, talking about Christ earning you merit. And through the sacrificial systems, through uh, marriage and through uh, the Lord's Supper, through baptism, you earn merits for God. This is a part of what purgatory is about. You earn merit. And as soon as you make the cover charge for heaven, whatever that happens to be, you then get in. The problem with thinking this way, the problem with picturing salvation working like this is that it distorts what God is really judging. Because no court works like that. If you go and rob a bank today, you don't get to look at the judge and say, well, honestly, you shouldn't hold me guilty for robbing the bank today because I haven't done anything like that before and I've never even had a speeding ticket. So because of that, my good works completely outweigh my bad works. And the judge says, I don't know if you know how this works. But you are guilty. God is not judging you based on your sins and weighing your sins. God is judging you based on whether you are a sinner. It doesn't take but to be born in a fallen world to make you a sinner. And the second you are a sinner, it doesn't matter how many good things you've done, they are all tainted with sin. You are the type of person who is sinful through and through. You are at enmity with God and angry at God, whether you admit it or not. And because of that, God doesn't need to judge you based on the works. The works simply support his judgment that you are guilty before him. Using other metaphors might be a little bit more helpful. The Bible gives us many other metaphors for our salvation, but there are two that are important here. One, Paul often talks about us being dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in Ephesians 2. Now, I don't know much about medicine, but I will say that I doubt very highly dead people help in their own resurrection, okay? When Jesus called into Lazarus and he resurrected him, Lazarus didn't say, listen, if you give me arms that work, I can defibrillate myself the rest of the way. It doesn't work like that because that's not how the image works. You are either raised by Christ or you are nothing at all. If dead people want to say, I can handle this, they stay dead. There is no resurrection there. The other example is, again, new creation, new birth, this re, being, being reborn by the Spirit. Well, you are reborn by the Spirit through the work of Christ, but it is you who is reborn. You do not do the rebirthing. This is why Nicodemus talks the way he does to Jesus when Jesus in John chapter 3 talks to him about you need to be born again or born from above. Nicodemus says, I don't know how I'm supposed to do that. The point is, you're not. Because you can't. 
It is a work that God has to do in you. No one has a say in when they're born. My youngest daughter was two weeks late. We went and got her, right? This is how it works. She doesn't have a say in these kind of things. They, they don't have a right to decide when you're going to be born and when you're not going to. There is no, I help, and Jesus does the rest. Either you are a sinner that is saved by the work of Christ, or you are not, and you can work for it. Paul says the, the goal of our faith is righteousness. What does he say here? You have been severed from Christ in verse 4. You who would be justified. You are going to be cleared by the law. If you are going to be cleared by the law, if you are going to have God stand before all of creation and say you are not guilty, you have two choices. Either you are not guilty because you are not a sinner and you've kept the law, or you are not guilty because you are not a sinner because Christ has died and risen for you. Those are the two options. You can't say, I'm not a sinner and Christ died for me. Paul says that doesn't work. You get one of those two options. You are severed from Christ. You have no part in him. If you want to make it on your own, you're separated from him and you're alienated from him and you don't need grace. Therefore, you've fallen from grace. What point does grace have in your life if you can make it on your own? What Paul knew very well is that he needed Christ to be resurrected for him. He needed Christ to have died for him. He needs Christ to die to pay the penalty for his sin, and he needs Christ to be resurrected to be justified for his sin. And only in that, only in that, on that final day, will there be a gavel that is rung, and Paul will be declared innocent. He will be declared not guilty. He will be called in the right, as will you and will I, only because of the work of Jesus Christ. Our goal and our faith is righteousness. Nothing else matters. Nothing else makes sense if we're not declared righteous on that last day. There is no inheritance for you if you cannot stand with God because you're a sinner. You need to be declared innocent. There is no happiness and hope for you if you are declared guilty. There is nothing good for you if you are still found in your sins. Everything flows from this act of justification. It is what we need and it's what we want. Notice something beautiful then in verse 6. Excuse me, in verse 5. He says, you have fallen away from grace. And the reasoning is a little bit odd here. He says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, you have been justified in believing Christ. Because Christ has died and been risen from the grave, you are indeed justified. We already know that on that last day we will be forgiven, but we are still awaiting that final verdict. What we have in the cross is like one of those sci-fi portals that just started to open up and you get to see the future now. And when you see Christ dead, and when you know that he has risen from the grave, you are seeing your own judgment there. For those who have put their faith in Christ, you have seen by Christ being raised from the dead your own vindication. So that you know what's going to happen on the last day before it's happened. You know it because it's happened already, oddly enough. It will happen and it has happened. So Paul says the whole goal of our faith is to wait for the day when our hope will be revealed, which is that we will be declared righteous before God. God will vindicate us before all of the world because we have already seen what will happen because it's already happened. Our hope and our goal in faith is the righteousness of Christ. His crucifixion and his resurrection are necessary so that we might be justified before God. 
And lastly, the fuel of our faith is love. Paul goes on to say, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The first bit is a little bit odd when he's just gotten done talking about if you accept circumcision, you're severed from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Christ is of no advantage to you. It seems weird then for him to turn around and say, well, circumcision doesn't really matter. Clearly it does matter. What he means by this is it doesn't buy you anything before God. The Jewish people who now can take circumcision and can use circumcision simply as a cultural right, simply as a way to say I'm Jewish, but not as a way to think that that earns them any favor before God. It's perfectly legitimate. As long as it's a cultural right and it has no religious significance, it's perfectly acceptable for them too, which is why Paul in the book of Acts will take Timothy and will circumcise him because Timothy was Jewish. It's perfectly normal cultural right. It didn't earn Timothy any gold stars with God. So he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means a lick of anything. Just because the Jews are circumcised and the Gentiles are, not un, are, are uncircumcised doesn't mean that for some reason they are greater men of faith than the Jews. He says it doesn't mean anything, but he says, but faith working through love. We cannot have a faith that is in our head only. You can't have a faith that simply exists with prepositions in your head, a list of things that you can check off and you can make sense of. You believe in the triune God. You believe that Christ died for your sins. You believe that he was raised from the grave. All of those are good things. But if it does not work through love, it doesn't work at all. Faith has to be powered by love. You can imagine our faith something like a gun. Listen, doctrine will help you get the right aim so that you know where to focus your gun, so you know what to shoot at to hit the goal and the object of faith in Christ. But your love for God, your love for Christ, is the, is the gunpowder that actually pushes that bullet forward. Without it, you cannot reach the target. You might aim correctly, but you'll never get there. Listen. If you had more faith than anyone else that this world has ever known, even Paul himself, if you believed mentally everything that you needed to, everything that God had called you to believe mentally, you believed in. If you were able to state your faith with the utmost clarity and conciseness, you had a doctorate in theology and were able to teach all of the great mysteries of God to the poorest of souls, but if you didn't have love, you would have absolutely nothing. Paul says it this way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and listen, and if I have all faith, so that I can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If your faith is simply mental, if your faith is intellectual, if your faith does not move your heart, if your faith doesn't cause you to rejoice in God, if you, if you read Psalms and you don't connect with them, and what I mean by that is you don't connect with the idea, God has saved me so I rejoice. I don't understand that. I, I, I never feel like that. Listen, check your faith. When you hear the message of the gospel, it ought to cause you to rejoice. When you hear about how good and kind and merciful and loving God is, it ought to cause you to rejoice, to give him thanks and to speak words of gratitude. 
If you are not moved by gratitude by God's great gift of salvation, if you're not moved to see his beauty and his glory, if you're not moved to praise him for what he's done, for the sacrifice of his life for yours and for his glorious resurrection, for his defeat of Satan and death, for his promises that have been secured for you, for the provision of the Spirit, for the joy and hope that he gives to all believers. Friend, no matter how many boxes you can check off, you have not believed. You haven't believed. Paul says, it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not. That doesn't work. That that doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't have grip on the ground. You just spin your tires. But faith, faith will work, but it works through love. The greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is what faith does. Faith works because it empowers your love. Paul pleads with the Galatians. He pleads with everyone that he comes in contact to to believe in Jesus Christ for their good so that they might be cleared of their sin in the last days. This is my plea for myself and for you today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you know him. Let this be a refresher for you. Let you sing the glories of his name when we will sing in Christ alone. What a glorious song to sing today. That it is in Christ alone that our hope is found. It is in Christ alone that we need to believe. We need nothing else in this world but Christ and him alone. For those of you who don't know him, I would plead with you for your own sake, for your own good. Know the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your hope and your faith and your trust in him for he is a rock and he will never let you down. He will never, ever let you fall from his hand. Trust yourself to him for he is a good and merciful God and only, only by trusting in him can you know God as kind and merciful and wonderfully beneficent to those who believe and trust in him. God is gracious and God is good and we know this because we have trusted and believed in him. Let us prepare our hearts to sing in Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, you are good in giving us Jesus Christ and we pray that we will put all of our hope and trust in him, that we will trust nothing to our own hands and to the work that we have done, that we won't trust in some sort of odd optimism that you will simply be kind to us because you want to be kind to us, for you have been kind to us in Christ. What other hope might we have? Father, we thank you for your son. And now as your people move into a time of singing, may you enliven their hearts through faith and love to be strengthened to sing in Christ alone, that we might know and demonstrate the joy and the love that we have for our God who gave himself for us. Pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.